0: Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, while it's Black History Month, I think it's important that while we look at Black history, we also look at real Black stories that are relevant right now. And this episode is definitely one that is very much a Black story. It's one that we often shy away from out of fear, embarrassment, guilt, respectability, politics, but it's important to reveal all of it to heal. And I definitely recommend to share it. She's a new friend to the show, Drew Dixon. Drew is an accomplished record executive, having served as a former vice president of a r at Arista Records, a former director of a at Def Jam Recordings, the former general manager of John Legend's independent label Homeschool Records, and the former manager of recording artist Estelle. She has produced hits for Method Man, Mary J. Blige, Kanye West, Whitney Houston, and more, and has been a voting member of the National Academy of Recording Artists and Sciences since 2001. In December 2017, Dixon broke her silence in the New York Times, shining a light on sexual assault and harassment in the music industry as the main subject of HBO Max's film. On The Record, she discusses the difficult decision to speak out publicly about being assaulted by music mogul Russell Simmons. If you haven't watched On The Record, I definitely recommend it. Also returning friend, Dr. Leanne Lord. Leanne is a veteran stand-up comedian, the author of Dicked Jokes and Real Women Do It Standing Up. And creator of People with Parents podcast. She has been seen on Comedy Central, HBO, The View, and was recently seen on Netflix in the Def Comedy Jam 25th Anniversary Special. I should say here that when mentioning Black Artist Help, I had recorded this after comedian Godfrey killed it on Tiffany Haddish's They Ready. And he was incredible in just, you know, mentioning my name. And he's always been one to lift black women up in moments like that. So To Godfrey, thank you. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review us there; that's important, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Instagram is Friends Like Us Podcast, and our Twitter is Friends Like Us Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation by going to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon. Backslash friends like us. Merch is available with the new logo. We have t shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, and face masks. Get yours today. Go to marinafranklin.com so you can represent your favorite podcast. Also, this Thursday, that is tomorrow, February 18th, I will be headlining my very own virtual comedy show with Mia Jackson and Eric Bronstein. Go to marinafranklin.com to get your tickets. With friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Most important, tell someone you know to check us out. And wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask and Black Lives Matter. And welcome to Friends like us. It is such a pleasure. It's an honor to have Drew Dixon here. And Leanne Lord is back. The way we all started today was just so fun. And it's like, I feel like you're my girlfriend already. I'm not even kidding. I love it. I, I mean, like it. Leanne was Same. saying, like we've been we've we've watched the documentary on HBO Max on the record. The reason it is such an honor to have you here, really, is because when I started this podcast, the reason I started it was to give it was really Black women voices to be heard in the comedy scene because I didn't feel like we were given a platform or a space or a place to be heard. I didn't feel like anyone really cared. And there was so much going on, and it was just silent. Black women in comedy, we weren't really pushed to the forefront. At the time, Saturday Night Live had said they couldn't find a funny Black female. And I felt very frustrated as a comic who had been around for, at that point, you know, 17 years. I was like, let me create my own space. So when I watched the documentary on the record, it spoke to me on such a deep level and need to be heard and need to be shared. The fact that you're here today is really an honor for me. So thank, thank you, you, Drew. Well, Can you t- Yeah.
1: Thank you. Gosh, that means so much to me. That's why, you know, I did it reluctantly. And that's why I fought for it when it looked like it might not make it. And, uh, you know, that was almost an even harder personal just, you know, leap than going on the record, which I thought was as scary as the thing could possibly be. But then sticking with it and insisting that this film get a shot when we lost our executive producer was hard. And so, you know, but it matters, you know, we deserve to be seen and heard as black women. And this story is just far too common and it's just not told. And this film I does think I do think does a really good job of exploring the layers in a way that I just didn't want to see lost, you know, like to some dustbin somewhere where no one got to see it. So I'm grateful that you watched it. I'm grateful that you're calling attention to it. And I'm hoping that it does continue to start conversations about the need to protect black women and girls, black bodies.
0: Yes, because souls. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's a documentary that, how do I put it? It's like the, the one thing that stood out to me is how these are all black women at, When this happened, they were a certain age and how it stays Mm. with you for such a long time. It doesn't, it's like everyone always says, you know, in the comics, you get comics who say ridiculous things like, why now?
2: Mm.
0: You know, why now? So I guess I would ask you that, like, why now? Why this documentary?
1: Well, you know, I thought it would be never, not now, but never. I thought I would take this to my grave. I thought that I would take the pain and the loss of my career to my grave. You know, not only was I raped by Russell Simmons when I was 24, I was then harassed by LA Reid from ages 29 to 31 and ultimately gave up my career. And even my children didn't really understand what my career was because I just sort of walked away from it. I I realized that there was no way for me to navigate that space as a woman, and in particular as a Black woman, without having to essentially acquiesce at some point to these gatekeepers who knew that they could control my fate and they could keep me from going to the next level where they were and really become their peer, which I was their peer in terms of the work I was doing, but I could never get into that room where it happened with those men without essentially becoming one of their playthings on some level in addition to doing the work that I did. So I thought I would take this to my grave. So why now? I mean, I thought it was going to be never. And then when Me Too happened, even then I wasn't planning to speak out. I didn't think Me Too applied to black women. You know, White women at least start out on a pedestal, however complicated and confining that pedestal is, they at least begin with this, you know, perception of being sort of precious and worth protecting. That's why Amy Cooper can invoke her white womanhood on a dime. I don't have an Amy Cooper card. I can't invoke any type of womanhood that's going to call any type of cavalry. And so I didn't think this was even relevant to me. And I didn't want to be radioactive as a black woman. I was trying to start a new career in a totally different space because I thought entertainment was closed to me. And then when other women came forward accusing Russell Simmons of assault and he called them liars and he said he did yoga and was a vegan and therefore was incapable of violence, I was infuriated because Russell was violent with me. Just to be clear, Russell physically fought me and I physically fought back. I kicked, I screamed, I cracked, I scratched, I cried and he physically fought me back and overpowered me with the weight of his body and actually speaking now to other Russell Simmons survivors, he has like a tactic, like a, a, a pin move. I mean, he is a, he's a serial rapist. And so I was so offended that he was invoking his like yogi brand to suggest he was incapable of violence that I went into the New York times off the record that's the only reason I even entered this movement at all and even then I was trying to not be like named and and I didn't want to be a part of this and then the Jenny Lumet story came out and I talk about this in the documentary these sort of little incremental steps that led me to not so much want to say this now but I couldn't live with myself if i didn't say it knowing that i was right there at the precipice and that if i didn't say it that i might be a part of silencing other women and 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 not standing up to validate other women and that's really why i did it so i did it because it was this moment that happened that sort of forced my hand in some ways but you don't ever move on it changes the trajectory of your life it it changes who you are i say in the film your life becomes a crime scene when you're raped. Your whole life is a crime scene. And when you're raped by someone in your career, your career becomes a crime scene. So it, it changed my whole life.
0: Yes, and that's the thing that stuck with me. The, that line, I, I believe Kirana said this, what happens when brilliant women go away? Um, that, you know, and I was telling you before we started, like, Leanne and I are older comedians. And Leanne doesn't want to admit that she's, you know, No, I name.
2: I yeah, yeah, no. I'm I, me and Harriet Tubman, we rocked out at open mics. Um <laughs> But I, I'm a seasoned woman. I I I've been here for a minute. So yes, I I I can totally cop to that Marina. We we've been in the game.
0: We've been in the game. A lot of the younger comics don't really know how tough it was for us what we were navigating. You know, that's the thing about this Film is that it really speaks to those layers that aren't really discussed a lot because it's, I think about sometimes the moment that I would get on stage and have this male voice in my head that used to always make me second guess. And it it was always a thing called, you know, you're letting that person in your head. Don't do that. Um. And I and I will say I I do think that where I would be today would be very different if that voice was not in my head,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it's still there. It's from years ago, but it's mm-hmm. still there.
2: I, I think right. I'd be in a different place if I were a man. Oh. You know, watching, you know, the interviews, and and I, I feel like I was aware of this last year. You know, I have a a, a friend who's a who's a film critic, so I felt like I was in. You know, early, it made me really wrestle with how, even though I chose the career I wanted, how did I have to always control and supervise myself to always be safe? Mm. You know, I, it changed what decisions I made in terms of what gigs I took, how late I performed, you know, how I always had my own car because I never felt I could ever put myself in the position to ride with a male comic. Because you think you know someone. It's always the person you think you know. And I, you know, so how, how I'm putting up all these walls, I'm putting up all these guards, I'm putting up all this, you know, policing of myself, because I know that I will, if something happens, I will not be protected. I will not be believed. That is what this culture has taught me. Right. You know, you referenced Anita Hill, you know, Desiree Washington, um, you know, oh, um, Rihanna, you know, when people go, well, what does she do? Right. So all those messages sink in and you go, I'm responsible for my own protection. Right. And when you say that, men get angry. So no, I don't. Well, this is years ago. You know, no, I didn't drink at gigs. No, I didn't go to after parties. And because when I did, I regretted it. (laughs) I didn't
1: drink in my career. I didn't. I didn't. When I was out in the music industry, I stayed totally sober. I didn't, you know because I wanted to be in control of myself and my surroundings. And even still, you know, it sort of takes, they have to, you know, it's sort of like they say about, you know, any predator, they have to be right once and you have to be sort of, you know, I let my guard down that one night thinking I was going upstairs to Russell's apartment to get a CD while he'd ordered a car, which I think was a ruse. I think him being on the phone ordering a car, he wasn't ordering a car. I don't think he called anybody and I think, I don't know i mean i think the whole th- now i think the whole thing was a trap it was a trap you know um but yes it's exhausting to constantly sort of you know anticipate 10 steps ahead what you're going to do in every single scenario in order to avoid you know being harmed that's exhausting that's just a waste of intellectual energy and you know what i was saying before i didn't finish the Sort of the counterpoint, white women start out on a pedestal. Black women started out on a slave auction block. That's our story here. So there is no baseline expectation that we deserve to be safe, unmolested, that we deserve to have any agency or bodily autonomy. And so, you know, knowing that, you know, you, you learn that as a, as a, as a young black girl, as a young black woman. And so you have to constantly navigate around this reality where you aren't protected. And frankly, the sad part is, guess who knows that? Our men, <laughs> they know that. They know that my, their, their anti-Black obsession with my white adjacent appearance, just to be completely honest with you, isn't gonna trigger the same repercussions that they do to me what they do to an actual white woman. Again, I go back to Amy Cooper, they can't do to me what they do to Amy Cooper, because Amy Cooper can call the cavalry and I can't, and and none of us can, no black woman can, none of us are safe. And they know it. And you know, it's this idea that if a black man comes to me and says that he was profiled by the police or he was cased in a store or on a sidewalk or on an elevator by somebody who thought he was harmful because of this mythology of the predatory, dangerous, violent black man. I believe him from the gate. He doesn't have to explain it to me. I'm already knowing if he tells me that. But if I say I was harmed as a woman in a situation, well, what were you wearing? What were you doing? Mm -hmm. Why were you there? I'm like, you know what? That's what white people do to us. When we say that we were being profiled, or we were being stereotyped, or you know, we didn't get service, or we didn't get a loan, or we were pulled over by the police, we don't do that to you guys, because we already know you know. We know what that is. So why are you asking us to do the same thing that white people do to us when we talk about racial prejudice and stereotyping? I know what it is to be put in danger and. Made vulnerable because of my gender as a woman. So don't ask me. I know what I experienced. It's not because of what I was wearing. It's not because of what I was doing. I have a 16 year old black daughter. I have a 14 year old black son. And I've given them both the talks that are designed to keep them safe from sexual violence and from the police and white vigilantes. And the bottom line is it really doesn't matter what I tell my son to do with his hands if he's pulled over or pulled aside by the police, any more than it matters what I tell my daughter to wear. The bottom line is it's racism and rape culture. Until we change that, there's really nothing we can do to keep our children safe. It's not us, it's them. And navigating that your whole life and your whole career is exhausting. It's
2: exhausting. Marina, did I not tell you I took a nap? <laughs> today. Oh yeah! Oh, like, okay. I was reading the articles you sent me, and plus I had to get up and do a little snow shovel, and I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna take a nap because. <laughs> well, I, I had a,
0: you know, like I, I I told you Drew before every every woman has a story.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, you know, I I have a story. I I may not be saying it here, and I you know I I just think of how how strong you are to share it. Because I'm still afraid to share mine. Same. You know, I'm still very Same. afraid to share mine. Um, because of the layers, because of, you know, like, even in my own family of mm-hmm. how things were. And, mm-hmm. you know, the family kind of teaches you how to deal with trauma.
1: think it doesn't when it does. The family yeah. teaches you a lot of things. How to deal with the creepy uncle or the creepy, you know, men and you learn real early that the family's going to close ranks around them not you don't get me started and you carry that with you into your career your young adulthood and your life and that is why it is so important to me to speak out because i want to break this cycle for all of us. We as a people cannot afford to lose talented women. And we as a people can't afford to create another generation of R. Kelly's and Russell Simmons and Bill Cosby's brilliant men, brilliant men, let's be clear, absolute geniuses in their respective professions who were also predators. And now we've sort of lost that legacy And you know, this cycle perpetuates itself for the men and the women, for the girls and the boys. And we can't afford it. We can't afford to lose people. We can't afford this. We need to stop doing this to ourselves. We're not doing ourselves any favors by keeping this secret. I'm saying this not because I don't love Black people. I'm saying this because I do.
2: I don't want to lose any more Brilliance. I I feel... I'm sorry, Marina, if you want to... No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I, I feel as if this starts so early, you know, and, and, and I will say, you know, per, perhaps I was very, very fortunate, you know, I had two parents and a dad that, you know, they both loved and protected me, but that love and protection only goes so far. They weren't with me all the time, you know, and you you get, I remember I was probably about 12 or 13, no 12, when I my reaction to what I was witnessing was I hated being a girl because I started to see how we were treated differently. That boys will be boys thing came up real early and I watched grown women, my teachers at school, protect their aberrant behavior. Uh And I was sort of, you know, not just me, but the other girls were sort of chastised on how we conducted ourselves and the boys didn't get that same training. And so it's like, so... at twelve, I'm going. So wait, I'm responsible for my behavior, and his, right? And that only got worse. And so i so like, what is this? What? Why is it different for us? And nobody ever answers that, and you just internalize it and keep on stepping. And, and then, yeah. yeah. And how many ways do you diminish yourself?
1: You make yourself small.
2: You know, you make yourself. I mean, I
1: made myself. I, I erased myself, I mean, leaving my career was like a suicide. I'd worked 10 years, I started out as an intern at Jive Records and then Warner Brothers Records and then a receptionist. I, I signed Nas to a publishing deal before Illmatic at Zomba before I even got to Def Jam. And you know, I mean, I made all these hits, you know, at Arista and Def Jam. And then I basically erased myself. And I just became this sort of shadow of myself. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's just a loss. It's a loss. I don't think I even understood what I'd lost in some ways until I saw the documentary, the rough cut of the documentary, because, you know, I wouldn't even go to my storage unit to get my gold and platinum records and the old pictures until I saw a rough cut literally after the film had been accepted at Sundance because I, 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 I didn't want to face it. I didn't want to even open up the storage unit and look at it. And then I did, and it was like the old original rose is still a rose, and you know all of this stuff that was there, and I was like, "You know, I just essentially buried myself I, I i and you know, if I'm doing that, who else is doing that how 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 many of us, even if we stay in the game or staying in the game, but in this tiny little corner of the game board, mm. and then which women? get to keep it moving get to go to the head of the class and how do they get to go there just to be real there are yeah. a lot of women who enabled what happened to me yes and interesting a lot of those women are very powerful in the music industry right now they enabled it and so you know they get to they get to stay in the room we either exile ourselves from the room or go to a tiny little side table off the room or in the corner of the room Cause we won't play their game. And you know what that does? It shapes the art, it shapes the culture. It shapes the music videos. It shapes the stories that women get to tell on the records they make because they're being made by these kinds of men and the kind of people that enable these kinds of men and the voices that would choose to make a duet with Mary J. Blige and Method Man, because it reminded me frankly, of my relationship at the time with D'Angelo, who I was living with when I worked at Def Jam. You know, seriously, when I heard the interlude, I was like, oh my God, that's us. This has to be a song. And if women like that don't get to make decisions, you end up with half naked women in the videos. You end up with, you know, sort of these broken women singing these songs. You end up with superhero movies and no nuanced movies from women's perspectives. It changes the art, which changes the culture and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it has to stop.
0: So it let me ask you: stop. Has have you have any since since the movie has come out? Since it's now and people are what? Has anyone changed? Has anyone said, "I'm sorry, I wasn't, I wasn't there for you. I was afraid." And are I they more married women?
1: I've had a lot of women reach out to me to say they had similar experiences. I mean, my DMS and Instagram and Twitter were just overflowing in the beginning with, with women and some men who'd been harmed either in the music industry or in other industries, you know, some people couldn't even talk. They had to leave voice notes, you know, I mean, a lot of other survivors, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of, of men reached out to say they were sorry. But I mean, a tiny, like I could count on one hand. Mm this day you know they're afraid ellie reed is still a big deal in the music industry russell simmons is still a big deal in general banished to bally or not he's still russell simmons there are a lot of people who had wealth and power and careers created by russell simmons not just in music in comedy in television and film and fashion And then Oprah Winfrey backing away from the documentary. I mean, that's that. That's it. That's it. That's Black Hollywood. Black entertainment is gone at that point. That's really Black excellence. You know, Black influencers are terrified to touch it now. So it's been really quiet. I mean, there have been some really brave people like April Rain. You know, really, there have been some people, you know, that have have stepped out and spoken out for us on Twitter and, and in other and in another ways, but the vast majority of the comments and the feedback I've gotten have really been from survivors and the powerful people in our community, the real big names, the ones who sit at the table where you make the decisions. Nope.
0: Yeah, the, the Oprah part was devastating to hear in watching that because when you have put yourself on the line like you have and 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 been so brave and just, it, it's just such a, a scary place to be. And for someone to initially be there and then not, I mean, did she at one point say why she was
1: there for
0: it? Or did she First did you all, ever have it? Yeah.
1: I want to just say it wasn't just me. It was also Salai Abrams, Sherry Hines, mm-hmm. Jenny Lumet, and all of the women who speak out at the end of the film. So it was terrifying for all of us. You know, all of us could have any one of us could have said pull my footage. I don't want to be in this film. It was absolutely terrifying. It was less than 2 weeks before, it was less than a week before I was supposed to get on a plane to go to Sundance with my children. No, I've never spoken to Oprah Winfrey in my life. She never contacted any of us to explain her reasons. Um She didn't even give the directors, you know, an hour before she told them to tell us. I was literally still on the phone with them when the story broke in The Hollywood Reporter. I mean, I literally was on the phone with them on speakerphone and opened my phone and they were like, oh my God, that was fast. I mean, it was, I think the story broke at like 6.20 or 6.30 and they they weren't able to get to me on the phone until like 6.05 or 6.10. I mean, it was quick. And no, I, she never told me why. She's never communicated with me in any way. She did say there were in, inconsistencies in my story in an interview that she gave in the New York Times that she never explained okay. what those inconsistencies are. I'd love to know. I'd love for her to ask me so I could clear it up. Because the New York Times, the original article that I'm in was a 3,000-word piece that not a single soul has disputed to this day. Not a word of that article has been disputed to this day. Yet she said in a New York Times piece two years later that she backed out in part because of inconsistencies in my story. I don't know what they were. I'd love to know what they were because there has to be some mistake, some confusion, because I've never my story has been the same for now 20 five years. I don't know. I've lost track of time. What was it? 19. But it's also the same
0: story that we hear from other women. There's no way that you can't compare it and go. And I didn't know those women.
1: I mean, his MO was the same. I mean, he actually allured other women into the apartment. So, I mean, not only the same MO, but in the same place, in the same place with the same little move, actually that he used to pin our wrists together with his one, like, arm i mean he has it's he has an mo so i'm i'm trying to understand i don't know i don't know to this day why she did that i really don't know and it was terrifying so we went to sundance with no oprah with no apple and i honestly didn't know when the movie screened if that was it if those people in that room and the three more screenings that were coming up at sundance would be the end and that would be it and nobody else would ever see it. I really didn't know. we did not know It was terrifying.
0: Can you tell me okay, one, can you tell me the reaction and and after you tell me the reaction of the room to the film like tell just tell me walk me through what that felt like their reaction to it
1: well, it was amazing i mean i, I was I was in a very sort of I was in a very sort of, I guess, hyper kind of aroused state, sort of as a trauma survivor. I was really scared. So it was kind of hard to take it in in a way. It was like almost sort of surreal that it was even happening. I'd never been to Sundance before, so I didn't know what to expect. And they, there was a standing ovation before the film even started when they announced it, which I didn't know isn't normal. But I guess that's because everybody knew about Oprah exiting the project. So just that it was screening got a standing ovation. And then there was like this rousing applause when I say in the film, I think it's time for us to talk about the plunder of black women. And there was like this applause, which really moved me because, yeah, it just, that really moved me because it is (laughs) high time that somebody, that we talk about that. And then there were like two more standing ovations There was a standing ovation when the movie ended and we made our way down for the Q&A. And then there was a standing ovation at the end of the Q&A when somebody asked, was it really the place of white filmmakers to make this movie? Did they really have any business making this movie? And I said, I don't know what I said, but first of all, I was like, well, we had an executive producer who was black (laughs) 10 days ago, (laughs) just to be clear. (laughs) Right. Who worked really closely with these two white filmmakers on the movie that you just saw. Number one, but also number two, I've been in entertainment for decades and Sherry has as well and Salai has as well. And nobody black wanted to make this movie. We all have friends in entertainment who knew our stories and none of our friends or their friends were touching this movie. So sometimes that's why you need allies. That's how you're supposed to use your white privilege. You use the traction you have. And the security you have because you're not in our ecosystem to hold space for somebody else and that's what amy and kirby did they did it and then they didn't abandon us i mean just to keep it real they had three other movies they'd already started making with oprah it was a series about sexual harassment in other environments she'd already been interviewed And she wanted them to basically not do this movie, but still do the other three movies. They could have just pushed us off a cliff and kept it moving with the other three movies that were still gonna be distributed at Apple with Oprah. They had other survivors who'd already been interviewed that they had a responsibility to. And they made the decision to let those movies go to protect this one. That's that's using your privilege. So sometimes, you know, you can't do it yourself. Sometimes you need people who have power and traction and leverage, and frankly, protection that you don't have. It's why we need men to help us solve rape culture. It's why we need white people to address systemic racism. So we don't have to be magic all the damn time. I'm (laughs) tired of being magic. Oh,
0: Yeah, I was saying that in the last episode, I the black girl magic thing always. I always felt like I couldn't speak out against it because I felt like it was so celebrated. But I understood right. what now for after watching your movie, I, I understood why it bothered me.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, not human, we're not
0: magical not human. Negro. It's so funny. The magical lists. Negro, yes,
1: the magical Negro, black girl magic. So we're magic and hypersexual, and our men are like violent and superhuman. And Trayvon Martin could use a sidewalk as a lethal weapon against a grown man with a gun. And a jury believed it. These myths are not helping us. We're not mythological creatures, we're people. We're people, we bleed real blood. And yes, we are strong. Yeah, God knows we are strong, but that doesn't exempt them. White people and men from their responsibility to help us and to see our humanity.
0: You know what strikes strikes me because I was telling Leanne this before, and I've experienced this in the comedy scene. It's always been interesting that the people that have either uh, you know shouted me out as a comic or lifted me up—they've been white.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh
1: yeah.
0: You know when I and when I when I was going to say the next question, I was get. All the people in Sundance,
1: yep, they were mostly white, you know. And They're that's white. Listen, it's not, yeah, there were black people at Sundance in town who were afraid to go to the on the record premiere because Oprah had backed away. Like, yes, it wasn't just that it happened to be white people. A lot of black people were afraid to go because why? Because you have three people at the black power table on the other side of this film between Oprah Winfrey, Russell Simmons and L.A. Reid. That's a lot of power at our table telling you don't touch this. So you had black celebrities, black filmmakers walking around in Park City who didn't go to the premiere. So it was white folks.
0: You which know, is a shame. Thinking-
1: and I appreciate yeah. that they were there. And thank you, white folks. But come on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause when we say speak to power, I always think it's speaking to white men. Mm-hmm. You never think of speaking power to to black individuals. You know, and 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 that's the thing. I've always been dis I you know, I've I've been disappointed by the black men in the comedy scene. Quite honestly. I mean, a lot of times they're in positions to lift a young sister up as being a great comic they'll pick one but you know what picking one does it creates competition and it, it and it's also when they pick the one that they do pick that's also there's a financial reason for that it's not like a genuinely like i went into the room i saw this person you know and you know charlie murphy had said this to me years ago when i was feeling sort of like picked on by male comics. And he would say, he would say, Mo Franklin, you know what you need? Uh, You need a a man that they're afraid of to get behind you because like Wendy Williams, you know, and that's, it's no longer true anymore, but at the time people were afraid of her man. So he would Mm. say the reason that she speaks is because they're afraid of him. So Mm. she speaks a lot. And then he became the (laughs)
2: Mm.
0: abuser too, but you know, it's, it's so fascinating that you you brought this up in the movie that Biggie was like, you, if you know, when you would walk down a certain block, if he was there, he had looked out for you. And if he were still right. alive.
1: And I don't know. I mean, you know, who knows? Right. I mean, we now know that I didn't know at the time that, you know, Biggie was, you know not okay in terms of the way he dealt with some of his personal relationships so maybe who knows right but he was always an advocate for me would always call me whenever he heard i got a new job you know but the most productive chapter of my career was when i worked for a white man a powerful white man i worked for clyde davis for five years for four and a half years and i had my best run i made the most hit records i put my people on, frankly, people I knew from Def Jam, Montel Jordan. I called him, you got any records? He brought in nobody's supposed to be here and we can't be friends for Deborah Cox. I knew Clef and Lauren from my hip-hop days, brought them in to work with Aretha, Whitney, Carlos. You know, like I was trying to take advantage of this opportunity I had to make records at a big label to call my hip-hop crew and get them in the building to make bigger records on bigger artists, you know? But I was able to do that reporting to an incredibly powerful white man. And I didn't go to J Records with Clive because I thought it was time for me to branch out on my own. I was ready and I thought I was respected enough. And I'd known L.A. Reed actually for, for you know, my entire career, I'd actually met him when I was at Zombie Music Publishing before I worked at Def Jam because I crashed the Outcast mastering session because I wanted to sign Outcast and Organized Noise to a publishing deal before they put out their first album. Wow! And I met Ali Reed in the studio. He's like, "Who are you? And how do you know them?" I was like, "Oh, I heard this snippet, and I heard they were here, and I, you know, I'm trying to do a publishing deal with them." And so he knew me from that, and he always was respectful of me when I worked with Clive and LaFace. and then once. I worked for him, everything changed. It's like I was suddenly a sitting duck and it, he flipped the script, you know? So yes, my most successful period in my career was when I was protected by a white man, but I thought I was ready to, you know, I didn't want to be Clive's bridesmaid. I wanted to be the bride. I was like, okay, it's my turn to have a label. I can do what these guys do. How do you know? we deal
0: with respect? It's called respect. I, I still get these labels wrong, but respectability politics, politics right? That's what it's called because we don't want to, I can, I can hear as we're talking right now, I can hear some of those, Oh, you don't want to, you don't want to lift up the white man or, but this is, this is what it
2: is. Listen, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here and I, I'm, I'm thinking, and, cause this is, you can't quantify this, but you know, it's there. What opportunities did you not get? Mm-hmm. Because somebody in the industry, you rebuffed their advances. You didn't, ha- you know, there's it, so much undercurrent. It's like, well, yeah, how come you're not on such and such? I'm like, well, who helms that show? Right. Oh yeah. Do you know that history? And then you, and then you don't want to be the bitter chick at the bar throwing it back. Oh yeah. Let me tell you what how that used to be or what happened. And like no. Or I I almost was. Right. I just. And then you sound bitter. Right. And I, I just listen. I just want to write. I just want to tell my jokes. I just want to, you know, be. And there's so much around Uh, Marina. You, you you know what it's like. You know, and and, just want to be judging the merit of your your work. About that. I, oh, oh, this brings up so much. But yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's just, it's because we've talked about this about why it's easier, you know, for white people to do it because they don't have the pain. But we need to start really looking at the black community and why they haven't had your back with this. It's just, you know what? It's like
1: we talked, you talked about the Charlie Murphy, you know, what he said. And, Yes, it's true. When, when, when a male comedian picks like one woman to, to pull up a black male comedian, maybe picks one black woman, you know, we obviously talk about the crabs in a barrel, right. And that dynamic and how that's destructive, but you know, what's really destructive, the barrel, the barrel is destructive. Yeah. So we're crabs in a barrel because of the barrel. So the white folks are responsible for the barrel, that's the systemic racism. And then within the barrel, how we conduct ourselves and how we engage with each other or don't engage with each other or vie for that little access to the top of the barrel, that's on us. We need to talk about that. We need to make sure that our men who have more power within the barrel, because they are men and it's a patriarchy, that they do the right thing and they don't take advantage of it to exploit us, which they do. So while we wait for white folks to remove the barrel and we use our power, whether it's to vote or to shop or to watch or to talk out, whatever it is to push back on the barrel, we have a responsibility within the barrel, in particular our men, to not take advantage of it, to hold women down who don't play their game or kiss their ring.
2: Where does this, I don't even know where we begin because I I, I feel, and Marina mentioned this to you, this is, we we have gotten louder. We have gotten more vocal. We have gotten, you know, it's not where we want it to be, but I I almost feel like we're dancing with ourselves because where are men in this equation? Like I feel their, their, their silence on this issue or their lack of support is absolutely deafening here. Yeah you know, because we realize this, you know, but but where, where are my men? You know, is it all testosterone poisoning? Are they just not taught how to manage themselves?
0: I mean, I've had conversations with, with a man who turned himself around, who used to be this type of individual and now sees it as wrong. And he, he used to say to me, black women, definitely have it hard. And, and you know, like, you know what struck me was the black man who couldn't say Breonna Taylor's name. Like, I mean, like, there's a comedian who, you know, is kind of like the most famous comedian out there. Said George, you know, Floyd's name, could not say Breonna Taylor's name. Also, didn't mention Kamala Harris and the winning you know we were all waiting and because you know black men in comedy are like the preachers they're sure. like they're like people look to them for yeah. like leadership so if they don't say brianna taylor's name if they don't mention kamala harris in moments where we're waiting it says everything in, well it in, says everything
2: I mean, my 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 issue my hurt goes back to when there was a video with a 14 year old girl you know, I won't even say, you know, the artist I'm talking about. Um, and men wanted to go, well, you know, that's a grown 14. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what is a grown
1: 14? You, well, you know what that comes from. The Atlantic slave trade, the average age of the enslaved women, and I'm putting women in quotes, was 15. Yeah. The I, average age of the enslaved girl on those ships was 15 and all of them were raped. All of them were raped. Okay. And black women are the only people in the world for whom it was an economically good decision to rape us for hundreds of years. Cause you could produce a bonus lifetime asset in the form of a new enslaved infant. No other group of women on the planet earth has
2: that particular history and
1: you know- regarding sexual violence.
2: I. I- I get that. But when you bring it down to our community, our men, our protectors, and I'm I'm hearing grown men never give us the benefit of the doubt. Like we're once puberty hit, we're we're just always supposed to know. Oh come on, she knew not to really? go to that Before hotel room at 17. Hit. Yeah, I'm being kind. I'm being kind. Yeah. So it's like, wow, really? That's what y'all think? We we just supposed to know who's a predator. We're supposed to protect ourselves from you right from you right. Okay. Well, it's
1: internalized racism we've internalized these myths that white people use to justify the brutality against us and we've internalized it and our men have internalized it we've internalized it as women and girls because we hear it from the time we are born that gr- wh- black girls are fast black girls You know, or making eyes at somebody. I mean, how many times I heard I was making eyes at somebody when I was like nine? I'm like, what even is making eyes at
2: somebody? I didn't even know what that means. But I figured it out. Oh, I had a very managed childhood. I wasn't allowed to be fast. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: we! My grandma called us Jezebels when we we tried to be too fa- Jezebel. Mm-hmm. I didn't. even, I didn't even know who Jezebel was. Listen, right? my I mom was a nice name.
2: My mom would do this thing where you know if I put on a dress, I had to wear a slip, and she would do the test. I had to stand at the doorway with the light coming through so that and make sure that nobody could see through my dress because she said, "No, I don't. Nobody, I don't want anybody seeing your breakfast." My what? <laughs> You know, so again, so you're you're again, you're taught how to manage yourself all the time.
0: But with their fear, with our 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 uh, mother's fear. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, totally. I I totally get it. Yeah, I, totally- I mean that's what I know about my grandmother was that she was, you know, and grew up, you know, in the fields in Mississippi. Mm. So she had a she had a lot of fear, um, and and so if she saw I I just put on makeup one day, I didn't know I could look so pretty. That's all I thought. I was like, wow, I look, I could look like this. Mm -mm. And then the the thing that came down, the words, you know, Jezebel and what you want to do that for was things I didn't even understand.
2: Mm -hmm. And it's you look back and you parse it out. You know, they assuming there's love, they're trying to protect you. Mm -hmm. That's protection. But yeah, but fear. It's fear.
0: So I know there was this one moment where um, we talk about the white lens and not using the white lens anymore, but can we not use the white lens if it's so complicated?
1: Well, do you mean with respect to the film? or Yeah, in, I mean, general. I was very afraid yeah. of the white gaze of them telling my story framed by their white gaze, not understanding how important Russell Simmons is, for example, like to them, Russell Simmons is like a music executive. <laughs> to us, he's like I top five that. icons, right? And black folks have no heroes to spare. Like so few of us get to the level of a Russell Simmons, right, like we can't, like we, we really, really can't afford to lose those heroes. You know, and so the stakes for us are so different than they were, I feared, for the filmmakers and telling the story of some you know, like of a guy who was a rapist, who was unexact I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand who Russell is, you don't understand what hip hop means right. to black people, and then I'm over here looking how I look, and you're gonna pit me against him. Oh, no, 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 no. We will not be doing that. I am not trying to get kicked out of the black community for the whole entire rest of my life. I love the black table. The black table is my favorite table. And I'm not trying to have y'all make a movie that has me banished from the black table from forever. Okay. But it took me 18 months to sign the release because I was so afraid of them messing it up. I was so afraid of them not understanding the stakes and how to center black voices. And every time i would like basically break up with them i'd send them like an angry email or an angry text or call them literally like a cinematographer had just landed and was on their way to my apartment i was like that's a pass no i'm not i'm not messing with y'all you know oh, they would cancel they would fall back and then they would sort of like surface a little while later with like an article that they'd read you know by shanita hubbard or a piece you know referencing kimberly crenshaw and i was like learning i'm like oh wow y'all really are very serious about this whole intersectional feminism thing. And I was like, they're really committed to this. They really want to do the damn thing and tell the story, the layered story. They're listening to me. They're really, you know, I think at at first, I mean, I was just one of several people they were interviewing for a Me Too documentary. I wasn't supposed to be the main subject of this documentary. This documentary didn't even exist and then when they interviewed me apparently they were interested in my story i think more because it was such a good example of someone's career that had been derailed yeah and they kept wanting to film me and i was like why are you guys still calling me like we did the interview like i don't get why we aren't done here and then when they told me they wanted to make this whole separate film they really didn't understand why i was so terrified i mean i was like absolute i was like oh my god this sounds like the worst idea and they really were curious about my fear and that's really why i think the film is effective so back to this question of the white lens and the white gaze in some ways i think what's effective about this film is that it really was sort of like you know they say explain it to me like i'm five years old for them Mm -hmm. they were kind of like five years old as it relates to understanding this issue that. us is so obvious as black women, like how layered this is. And so they unpacked it like it was new. And in some ways, I think that was more powerful. And I was really struck when I finally saw the rough cut, because they didn't let me see like a frame of footage or anything. It was very church and state, you know, very like journalistic, you know, like rigorous, like, we know that you used to make records. We know that you like to control things. You can't even see a frame until it was already accepted at Sundance and it was a rough cut. And I was really struck by how thoughtful they were in one centering black voices. It's all us talking. They don't even show up. They really handed us the mic. Love it. And it's really interesting when you talk about black men, there were many black men who are my friends, who knew my story who declined and declined and declined and declined and declined. So Miguel and Daddy-O and Gary Watson being in that film was not a small thing. Every other black man that I asked, and I asked a lot, because I told more people than I realized in the very beginning when it happened, there were people who knew and then I just stopped talking about it. And there were people who knew about the Ellie Reed thing and they all declined. I mean, I'm talking, you know, a dozen declines.
0: Wow. That's just like, you know, you have what, you know, what happened to you. And then every time someone declines and every time someone backs out, it must feel like it's happening all over again. I mean, it's just devastating. And it's just like, you know, it's like, I I wonder what we do about this, this problem. You know, because e- even in the interviews I've seen with men with you, you know, and I-, I wonder, do they hear themselves sometimes? You know, do they listen? You know, do they take the time to actually hear you in it? Uh, I mean, and that's what's so great about the movie is like we're here. And here's the other part that I knew. I said some I know these are when I read the article, it says white directors. I said, but I know someone this was very black this is a very black story. I mean, you're talking about at one point when you go into talking about colorism, light skinned women, like where I'm, I'm bordering. I'm like, you know, I'm in the middle, like, but still girl, you in, you light skinned it. <laughs> no, I think, I think I'm in the, I think I can, you know, play both sides a little bit, but the, the fact that the conversation happened, the way it happened was so familiar to me. And there's so many times when I've had these, you know, documentaries done of me where I want to give the full story in a black way, or I I say things as a white director and they just sit there and they, it almost like it stops. Like they're like, we don't want to put, we want to, we don't really want to go there. We just got this little box that we want to put it in so people can digest it. Uh, but the conversation yeah. that the, that, all of you women had at that time when you're you're going to the home i've yeah whose home J- it was that? jenny
1: and sly it was actually they rented a space but it was sly jenny and and um, myself yeah
0: this is a beautiful yeah. moment that i've never seen between mm-hmm. light-skinned women because the conversation lately has been about the treatment of dark women, which it has to be there.
2: Oh, for sure. But
0: the other side of this, of what happens to light-skinned women, is in that movie. And it's so Mm -hmm. clear. And it's never, I've never seen it.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it's one of the reasons I felt like I had to go on the record. And it's one of the reasons I felt like I had to sign the release ultimately for this film to happen. Because, you know, I think you have to use the privilege you have and, you know, I, I, I can get a cab and I don't think that what happened to Sandra Bland would happen to me. I think that white people see me in a way that they don't see some of my sisters, but I can't invoke my light skin privilege with the police. I can't invoke it to get a loan. I can't invoke it to suddenly have family wealth. Cause I don't have any family wealth. I have two black parents, four black grandparents, eight. Black great grandparents, you know, I always say my family was mixed before they called it mixed. My family was mixed when it was one drop, you know, so we're black, you know, nobody could vote. Nobody could drink from the white water fountain. Everybody sat in the back of the bus. Everybody went to black schools. However we look to you, we're black, you know, but I do understand that in the white gaze, I get to move around a little bit more. You know just a little bit more and it's important and so maybe you can see me and listen to me in a way that maybe you won't listen maybe you won't watch surviving r kelly on lifetime but maybe you'll watch this you know knowing these filmmakers i knew that they had a shot of getting it on a major platform and i don't want to miss that opportunity for all of us as black women So maybe they will watch and listen because they can see my humanity, which is a damn shame and that's their problem. But while I have your attention, please, I would like for you to reflect on every Black woman and every Black girl, Pecola Breedlove, who wanted the bluest eye, didn't have it in Toni Morrison's book. I want you to understand that none of us are safe. There isn't a black woman or girl in this world who is safe. Please understand that. And please understand where that begins. Please understand the part you play. Even if you're not a predator, black men who think they're innocent, who turn the other way when they know harm is being done or a woman is being isolated in her career and they don't extend a hand. Please understand you are part of the apparatus that keeps this rape culture moving. So you need to decide what role you want to play. If you want to be a part of this. And I understood that my appearance gave me a little bit more room to be seen and heard. And I felt that it was important for me to use that to hold space for all black women and girls and all black survivors, frankly. It's,
0: it's wonderful. I mean, it was just, like I said, there's so many layers, um, which I think as a black performer, right, this is all I've ever asked for, is to not just be taken on stage as just, you know, this black woman's coming on stage, but listen to like all the layers that's in me. Right. You know, I always said, you know, my name means a place where you dock boats. It's not an African name. I was always afraid of saying that and it being offensive to someone saying, why don't you embrace You know, you know the African here. Why do you say that? I go. I I think because saying a place where you dock boats is unexplainable. Really, it's kind of like what does that mean? I I don't really have. It doesn't have an answer. It's it's like, and that's the thing I've always for myself as an artist always looked for, um, and always tried to let. People see me, you know. I think that's the thing that, as black women, we just want you to see us, and not put these labels on us. um I want to ask you where you are now, like with your career moving forward. Like, what's I saw the young, the young singer. Can you talk about her? She, she kind of reminds me of you. Like, like she would be you. I know
1: it's so funny. People keep saying that. It's, it's. You know, that's so cool I thought she was your
0: daughter. I wasn't sure. That's
1: yeah. what people think on, on, on Instagram. They're like, oh, your daughter's record is coming out. <laughs> I have a daughter that is not my daughter. Um, Ella Wilde's mother was my kid's preschool teacher. And so when her mom read the article in the New York Times, she called and asked me if I would meet with her daughter, Ella. Because Ella wanted to be a recording artist. And I was sort of like, this is probably the worst thing in the world for Ella, because I am like radioactive persona non grata for sure. But Ella probably isn't very good. And I love her mom. So I'll just take this meeting and get it over with. And I, it was Super Bowl Sunday, actually, and come back home with my family. My then husband and kids were making wings. I was like, this will be 30 minutes. And I went and I was blown away. I was blown away. By her voice, and she plays the guitar and she plays the piano. She went from one to the other, playing me her songs. But mostly, I was blown away by Ella's songwriting. Her, comp- her sense of composition was so strong. And as somebody who's made records for my career, it's nothing without the song, without the composition to hang all that cool sound around and those cool vocal runs and performances around. You need the structure, you know, that's the airplane, you need the engines, it's gotta fly. And she wrote hits and I was blown away by that. And then she's a beautiful girl with a beautiful voice who can play with a presence who can then deliver it. And then I realized the only way to really protect her, not just to make her record, but to protect her was to create a label and sign her to my label so that anybody else that did a deal with her would have to do it through my label, not because I wanted to control or exploit her. In fact, I'm structuring it so that she's quite empowered and can ultimately like, you know, get out of it and go on. You know, I mean, I want it to be, it's really about her, you know, but I wanted to be able to travel with her and to protect her and to nurture her. So I'm working with her. My label is called claim because I'm claiming my power. Nice. And I'm claiming my space and like Auntie Maxine Waters, I'm, I can't reclaim my time, but I can reclaim my power. Yes. I'm working with Ella, Ella Wild. And I also am writing a memoir. I have an amazing editor, Rakia Clark, a sister at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, who signed my memoir. And I'm working on that and I'm exploring a lot of what we're talking about today, you know? The way that black women really aren't safe, black women and girls aren't safe here, and what we need to do about that, and how my story sort of is an example, you know, even with the bluest eye, right? You know, and a lot of privilege in terms of my family, my resources, I have not been safe. I have not been safe. And so, what does that say about any of us, right? You know how do we how do we change that? So I'm working on a book, which is quite a journey, and I'm I'm doing a bunch of other things. I've got an idea for a television show that's set in the '90s and it centers black women, and it's really cool, and I'm really excited about it. So I'm trying to get that a home. And um, you know, I want to
2: introduce. I want to introduce my sister.
1: Oh yeah, I'd love to meet your. Sister. I want to say one thing though. I thought that burying the trauma was burying the pain and I wouldn't need that. And I would just invent this identity that wasn't a rape victim. That was this Harvard Business School graduate who married another Harvard MBA and became a mom and looked great on the Christmas card. And that would be enough. What I didn't realize until I said me too is that the box that contained the pain contained my light, my power, my swagger, my fearlessness, my creativity. I had no idea all the treasure that was in the box with the pain that I had ignored and didn't look at. I didn't pry it open until literally the Me Too moment forced me reluctantly to open the box just enough, I thought, to tell the New York Times to back up these other women. And then a little bit more for the documentary. What I didn't realize is that all these other things were in the box. And when I got them back, I had my swagger again, my creativity again. My, my, my audacity, my fearlessness, and I had all these ideas again. And that's what I want every survivor to know. There are things in the box with the pain that you need. Open the box and get
2: the good stuff.
0: Stuff. I don't know why I just started crying a little bit. I just... Um, oof.
2: Man. That was powerful.
0: Uh, you know, I, it's also because I'm happy that the brilliance did not go away. That's this. That that's it what came it is.
2: back. That you can that, come is, back. Yeah, you can sometimes come you back. Can need a little time to step back. You need In it. Twenty-two years. That's, that's 22 too long. Years. <laughs> but but to know that you can come back and you can open the box. Yes, I had no idea. I mean, as Marina, as comics, I think you—you, you, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like we play in the box all the time. That's where the gold is. For that it, that that we translate our hurt into, you know, works, we screenplays, plays, jokes. Yes. You know, when the right. women in the audience are like, "Yeah," and you know, and you can get the men too. It's like so that, yeah, that box kind of stays open <laughs> for us, and it's it can be scary, but man.
0: 'Cause like Leanne and I are at we're at that age, man. We ain't saying the age, but we're we're at it and we're trying to continue. I mean, sometimes people look at you like you're
2: done, right? Oh, I'm so annoyed. I'm so (laughs) I I really feel like I am I'm hitting my stride, like my, with my, my voice, my intelligence, my lack of patience yeah. for the foolishness. Like, I feel like this curtain lifted and I'm like, sir, I see you. That's nonsense. And I call it, you know, I, I, I'm much better, not at, at also reclaiming my time, but where I choose to spend my time. Cause my time is valuable. My energy is valuable. My intellectual and emotional energy is very valuable. And I get to choose where I spend that, and I'm not wasting it on people that don't value it. So, I um,
0: I have these articles, but I just feel like we've covered everything so well. Did you read the articles, Drew, or did you look at them at all?
1: Which ones? The ones that I'm in?
0: No. I, well, I have like all. I have one. I have your your article, which we've covered the whole show. Um, but then there's there's a couple articles that my Intern was supposed to, or assistant was supposed oh. to send you. It's okay. If mean, marina reader, yeah, marina, marina gives to, us homework. <laughs> know, it's okay. It's I okay because we usually do like we usually do hot topics, but I will skip through some because we've already okay. ready cold we've, call. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. I mean, but a lot of the topics just apply to what we've been discussing. I mean, I think I will move on to some of the things we can look at is or talk about um Cecily Tyson you know, who just passed. Right. And I think it would be remiss for me not to mention her. Is that the word? I don't use big words.
1: Remissed, by the way. I've never, I've never really known how to use that word, but I, I try every now and then.
2: <laughs> so, as, as the former English major, you use the word properly, Marina. No I, can I just say I've
0: added your playlist to my Spotify drew. Aww. And I was, leg- I was rocking to it this morning and I was like, Oh my God you are responsible for some of the best hits of my college days. Like, you know, like I have to share it with you, Leanne, and I will share it with our audience. Um, Can you take them down the list of songs so that they know who you are? Some of those Yeah.
1: Wow. So, no, it's well, huge. The very first record that I helped to make was I had an idea that an interlude by Method Man. This is in the film. Shorty, I'm there for you. Anytime you need me for real Girls Me and your world. Believe me, that makes man feel better than a woman. Queen with a crown. that' you be down for whatever. I was like, oh, my God. That's all my an playlist. Interlude. No joke. And Love I was that, so God. like, I mean, I like cried when I heard the interlude and I was just supposed to be like doing the credits. I mean, I was, I came in, it was already done the album was finished. And I was like, no, 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 no. That has to be more than an interlude. No one's gonna hear it. If it's an interlude, you need to make it a duet. You know, it needs to be a song. And I kept bothering Russell and eventually he let me call Puffy to see if Mary would do it. And Puffy said, yes. And that's how that record came to be. And that was the first idea I ever had to make a record as an A&R person. And then I put together the show soundtrack where I just called all my favorite artists from around the country. To represent what I thought was kind of the state of the art of hip hop, and so we had Bone Thugs and Harmony. You know, we had a lot of lot of joints. And then I quit after the rape, and I thought I was going to quit the industry, but I still had to pay my rent. I still had to pay my student loans, and I was like, okay, I guess I need a job. And I got all these calls because the show soundtrack was still number one on the R and B album charts and I met with a bunch of people and I fell in love with Clive Davis cause he's a music guy. And to be honest with you, it wasn't lost to me that he was also an older white man who was like rumored to possibly be gay. I was like, okay, this could be a safe place for me to be. So I worked for Clive and while I was there, I introduced him to Lauren Hill, who I'd known through my sort of hip hop days, connected her with Aretha Franklin. Lauren had an idea that became A Rose is Still a Rose. Um, I connected Yclef with Whitney and we made My Love Is Your Love. I introduced Yclef to Carlos Santana and they made Maria Maria. Montel Jordan introduced me to Shep Crawford who brought Nobody's Supposed to Be Here in. I played it for Clive. He wanted to give it to Faith Evans because Faith was signed to Arista through Bad Boy. And I insisted that he give it to Deborah Cox because Deborah Cox needed a record to break. And I mean, faith has the voice of life for sure, but I thought Deborah's pipes were the right pipes for nobody supposed to be here. And so we gave it to Deborah and she cut that. And Montel and Chef also brought We Can't Be Friends, which Deborah cut as a do out with RL. And then I was an AR person that worked on The Boy Is Mine with Monica and Brandy. And I worked on the whole Whitney album, you know, the whole My Love Is Your Love album. I worked with Rodney Jerkins you know, on those records. And then I signed Brand Nubian the rap group that I love. That's one of the reasons I even wanted to make rap records was because of Brand Nubian's first album to a reunion album called Foundation. And there's a song in there called Maybe One Day with Common that is just dope. And, you know, it was dope. I love that album so much. And then I signed Q-Tip to a solo deal when he left Tribe and we put out Vibrant Thing and Breathe and Stop. And then I signed an artist from St. Louis named Toya. We put out a record called I Do. And then I left the industry, went to business school. And then I came back briefly because I had tried to sign John Legend and John by then had won three Grammys and started a label. And he'd signed this artist named Estelle from England. He thought her album was done. I I love that song so much. So I encouraged American Estelle girl, to go right? back in the studio, American Boy, they made American Boy. American My son's the video yeah. at the very end, his claim to fame. He's like, I have 100 million views, mom. He's like, the little boy. Again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I called Kanye and we got him to be on American Boy because anyway, Estelle was afraid it was too pop. So I was like, okay, what if we call Kanye instead of getting him to produce a track, which was taking too long? Why doesn't he drop 16 bars on American Boy and he dropped 48 bars? So we had to break into two sections and that's how American Boy came to be. So, you know, yeah, I I I tried to use my access. I tried to get in the room, hold the door open, and then try to pull black excellence in. I'm not saying like, you know, I I don't try to pretend that I'm like the mastermind behind all these records, but I did make a way. You know, I fought, you know, whether it was with Clive to let Lauren produce a Rosa Still Rose and also to direct the video, you know, and to connect Whitney with a lot of producers I knew for my career before that Clive wouldn't have known who are more hip hop leaning, which I think moved Whitney to like a cooler place, you know, and Lauren and CeeLo did a record with Carlos Santana that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't connected them. And so, you know, I tried to use my access, my role as an A&R person to push for records and opportunities and collaborations that I felt embodied sort of the greatness of, of black culture and art and voices. And that was my privilege to do it. I love doing it so much. And that's really what I hope to do again, you know?
0: It's amazing. It really is. It's, it's, it's just speaks to what black women do as we open doors. What black men do is something different. (laughs) Um, but you know, that's why I bring up Cecily Tyson because she's one That, you know, when she her passing just time to reflect on who she was and how she was able to maintain with all the stories we even knew about Miles Davis. I mean, on Thursday night, the sad news broke that the iconic actress in mode, Cecily Tyson, died at the age of 96. Celebrities and other Hollywood industry insiders took to social media to pay tribute to the woman who embodied every black woman and consistently provided us with reminders of just how powerful and beautiful we are. Cecily decided early on that her work as an actor would be more than a job. I think of all of of what Cecily Tyson had to endure to be so great.
1: To be so great and have the so, grace i was about to, to say at home in her body at home in her beauty and at home in her body and at home in her brilliance like i want to know like how was she raised what did they tell her to stand in those rooms in those spaces and know that she was so much more beautiful than so many people may have understood and she knew it and we knew it and we saw it and we loved her for it But to hold that space the way she did with so much dignity is
2: really incredible. Yeah. I mean, it feels like her whole life is a masterclass for us. Mm -hmm. That, that, like you said, that dignity. So often that's the first thing they want to take.
1: Like, yes. can you do
2: this role where you get to be a dead hooker? No, sir. <laughs> I'm not interested right. in that. And if and right. then if and you don't if that you don't want to go through that door, then they close all the doors. Right. Right. Where well, well, right. I'll ask this last
0: question, and and then we will uh, get out on a couple of things that I like to do before we go. Um, where do you where do you think the state of black women? Where are we with in Hollywood and in music and in hip hop? Like, where were you to say? Are we in a good place?
1: I do not think we're in a good place, to be honest with you. I kept waiting for the cavalry to come in response to this film, and it never came. You know, I am so grateful for you asking me to be here today to talk about this film. Every single time anyone asks, I try to do it because... I appreciate the support and the and the platform for this story for all of us, but the the silence, the the dearth of doors that open, the the lack of an extended hand from really powerful black people in particular shocked me. You know, this film came out two days after George Floyd was murdered. And I think it made it even more complicated to have more complicated to to have a conversation about a violent black man in the middle of a movement that absolutely necessarily pushes back on the danger of that mythology. You know, it's hard sometimes for society to walk and chew gum at the same time, especially when it comes to black stories, because they just don't give us that much space to exist in the first place, let alone to exist in a way that's nuanced. I am, you know, I, I thought maybe this moment would be the moment that would turn it around. I now worry that we are going to have to wait for the next generation and maybe this conversation will carry itself through to inspire another generation to, to really turn it around. But I really don't want another generation of young women in their careers to have to go through what we went through. I really don't wanna lose more time and more brilliance. And I'm concerned that this opportunity is maybe missed. I'm concerned that the men in the rooms who make decisions about which comedians get put on and which artists get a record deal and get the budgets and the support are still largely toxic men. And so I am concerned. I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm still very concerned.
0: I'll- I love that answer because I, they asked me that in a documentary recently, and it was a long pause
1: because
0: mm-hmm. I didn't know what to say. I was like, they were like, do you think I was like, because if I answer this wrong, it could take away work. Right. So I didn't know how to answer it. And it was a long, it was such a loaded pause,
2: I, but go ahead. Leanne, no, sorry. I just want to add, you said toxic men and the women who support them. Boom. That's right. That's right. Because a lot of this, we didn't learn from men. We learned from other women. Well,
1: and I'll be honest, I'm sure that wasn't her intention. But by backing away from this film in the 11th hour, and then, you know, even Ava DuVernay giving a quote, criticizing a film that hadn't even come out yet in the New York Times, you know, when you, you know, that's, that's, that didn't help. You know, so when Oprah Winfrey backs away and then Ava DuVernay criticizes the film, you know, that creates a chilling effect that, you know, I just, it just, we're already trying so hard to get just a little bit of oxygen to breathe as black women to tell our story. And I didn't understand why, why does this film have to be perfect? I mean, a, a lot of movies come out that aren't perfect. Okay, but why are you critiquing this movie? You're finding fault with this movie before it even comes out and gets a shot. And all these other movies that white folks make, you're not doing that to them and they're not perfect either. But this movie has to be perfect. Like literally for us to get 95 minutes to talk about the vulnerability of black women and girls, needs to be sexual violence, we have to be perfect to get 95 minutes of Shine, really? That's not helpful. That's not helpful at all. And so it really concerns me that not just the toxic men, but whether intentionally or not, the women also in positions of power who aren't pushing this conversation forward, it is harmful and it really makes me worry about how long it's gonna take for Black women and girls to be seen and protected and safe.
0: And this pandemic is not helping. So, yes, well, you know, I don't want to wrap it up in a pretty bow at the end. And that's actually why I liked your your movie is because it doesn't have to, you know, sometimes you tell a story or they want your story. and They were like, how can we it's kind of it's got to it's got to, you know, come up and be good. It's like, no, no, that's the good part is finding out what we need to do next, actually, and that it's not done, you know, so I will leave it there. And I'll say like, um, I'm in my therapy voice now, sorry. (laughs) But I will say that I really, Drew, man, and Leanne, I thank you for today. We always go out on, um, um, you've already said what you're doing next, but tell our listeners, Drew, where they can find you. And then we do like a friend's, well, actually, let me me start out. Let me do this with Leanne and then I'll do that with you. So, because Leanne knows how this goes. And this is your first time. You're our new friend, Drew. Hey, I love you track, best friend. So so Leanne, tell our listeners where they
2: can find you and give us a friends like us. Um, Folks can find me at veryfunnylady.com. They can also find me in the Dry Bar app. My Dry Bar comedy special was just released. So I would love for people to enjoy. That is a family-friendly, clean comedy uh, that they can enjoy. And I will say that with friends like us, We can weather
0: any storm. So Marina Franklin here. Uh, Just go to marinafranklin.com for everything. You know, I'll be doing another uh, Zoom comedy show February 18th, where I'm headlining my own Zoom comedy show. I'm putting it out there. The first one, those of you that came out, it was amazing to see the people that actually like my comedy to be there. It's like talking, telling jokes to your own family. So thank you for being there February 18th. And we have merch for the Friends Like Us podcast Available also at MarinaFranklin.com And um, with Friends Like Us hmm, You can be surrounded By some of the most beautiful black Women And feel heard
1: mm-hmm. sure. Wow I'm taking it all in February 18th I'm going to be there
2: <laughs> um.
1: <laughs> You can find me, Drew Dixon, on Twitter and Instagram at Dear Drew Dixon. That's my handle on both Twitter and Instagram. I don't have a website or anything yet. I'm working on all that stuff for my label claim. But at Dear Drew Dixon on Twitter and Instagram is where you can find me. And with friends like us, we can change the culture for the better and change the world. Yes.
0: That's a Harvard grad there. You hear that? (laughs) I mean, you just so you really are a brilliant, true. Yeah, for you really sure. are. I mean, my God.
1: Both in New York, I'm serious.
2: Like, I'm going grab a drink outside I'm in, I'm at a heat lamp. Yeah, I'm in. The, oh, <laughs> I'm pro heat lamp. Yes, I'm in Queens. I'm in the. I'm, okay, I'm in Harlem. I'm, on oh, great. I'm
1: in Brooklyn
2: okay so we get we got it cover. So we can in- meet in the middle <laughs> I'm serious I would love it oh man I, it's been so long since I've gone out and done that I know it's like I miss me I
1: <laughs> and I also like I don't know if this is I'm just gonna be honest you know I literally my divorce was final in December 2019 I went to Sundance in January and I was like great as soon as this documentary premieres I'm gonna start making friends because I was married for 16 years with kids and so I kind Of you lose you don't have friends anymore who are single you can hang out I was like okay great in February and March I'm going to start making friends and then the pandemic (laughs) happened I'm like okay I'm stuck inside (laughs) with like no friends I mean I have friends but they don't live here and I'm so I'm serious guys I'm going to find you no I'm serious too I'm serious too check Check us us
0: out out. oh yes oh my god (laughs) thank you Drew